0: Welcome back to the American Writers, 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I will be continuing our look at the, the works of Herman Melville. Now, now this, this um, episode will be a bit of a, of a mixed bag. I'll be looking at some of the uncollected prose. This is, this is all collected in the third volume, uh, third of four now, of volumes collected, collecting the works of Herman Melville by the Library of America. The fourth is just coming out um, this year. Or next year, 2019, it'll be his poetry, which which I'll come back to and look at. But uh, the first three volumes, which are all published pretty early in the series, and the first few years of the series, are his, you know, collected prose works, um, and they're mostly chronological. But uh, this is a section called Uncollected Prose. It has six essays, mostly which are book reviews, and a dozen or so tales the tales that weren't collected in the piazza tales so i'm doing this now just as a kind of an extension of the piazza tales but some of these works were written quite early in novel's life um you know and maybe chronologically fit more with uh, the other volumes but um they're collected here so um I don't, I don't know how much i'll say about these things um we got six articles in, re- in reviews and i think all but one of them is essentially a, a book review. Uh, one of those, one is kind of a satirical piece, and, and one is sort of a book review, but it's actually more of an analytical essay on, on Nathaniel Hawthorne, a very famous one. And then uh, four short stories, uh, Fragments from the Writing Desk, which he wrote as, as, as a teenager. It's, it's his, the only example of juvenilia that's collected in this series. I don't know if there's any more to collect, actually, but we have this one. We got The uh, "Happy Fail- Failure," "The Fiddler," and Kaka Doo, which are all early stories he wrote after the failure of Pierre. So I'm going to focus on that in my opening comments. The you know M- Melville had wrote and written just novels basically, and a few sort of things, but mostly just novels for his first you know eight you know eight novels from Pierre from Taipei to Pierre and in Israel Potter which we already just looked at, at the, in this podcast. Um, with the failure of Pierre, he turned to writing some short fiction just to kind of keep writing because no one would take his phone calls or return his letters in terms of publishing another novel. Right? He would write one more novel in his lifetime and get it published called The Confidence Man, but he basically his career as a writer of novels has, had died. He did, after Pierre, write Israel Potter, but he had to sell that basically as a straight adventure tale. And he couldn't really do a lot of what he did in his other works. Um, But he did find some success, some moderate success as a writer of short fiction. And these are some of his early attempts. And in the next episode, we'll look at the rest of his uncollected short stories. And some of those are really important tales like Paradise of Bachelor and Tartarus of Maids, Jimmy Rose and, and some others. So. Um, yeah, th- these episodes won't be the longest and the most in-depth. I just want to kind of give a report on, on what I noticed when I, when I read these and my, my thoughts. I think today I'll focus mostly on Hawthorne, the Hawthorne essay. And yeah, that might, that might be it. I mean, they're fun to read. I, I, I really enjoyed glancing at these. These are kind of things that it's, it's really tempting to maybe just skip over when you read a book like this and get to Billy Budd, especially because Billy Budd is right after this section in the book. and and you kind of want to jump to it, but they're worth glancing at. Um, Most of these book reviews, though, aren't particularly important. Um, The first article we have here is called Etchings of a Whaling Cruise, and this was published in, I don't know, 1848, 1847? Uh, The books he's reviewing were published in 1846 and 1847, and he's just reviewing two works uh non-fiction works of of life of sailors it's it's very much in Melville's purview he was writing maritime fiction at the time so it's not surprising he wrote this um the first book he reviews is etchings of a whaling cruise um with notes and surgeons on the island of Zanzibar to which is appended a brief history of the whale fishery it's past and present condition by J. Ross Brown now that's a very 19th century non-fiction book title where they go on for a whole paragraph uh, the second one is by Captain Ringbolt. I don't know the guy's first name. It might be in here, but it's called "Sailor's Life" and "Sailor's Yarns." And yeah, they, these are both of these books are exactly what they sound like. "Etchings of Whaling Cruise is kind of a, a narrative of a sail, the maritime narrative of which hundreds and hundreds were published in the nineteenth century. Endless numbers. It was a very popular genre, um, and then it kind of connects to. The overall whaling industry. And uh, then we have Sailor's Life and Sailor's Yarns by Rimbolt, which is, seems to be, of course I haven't read it, but based on what Melville says of it, seems to be really uh, a look at, at almost sailor mythology and, and sailor stories and things like that. And Melville, of course, reflects a lot on his own experiences as a sailor as he looks at these works. Now one thing that Melville points out with these two works is that Etchings of a Whaling Cruise by J. R. Ross Brown is is he calls it the view from the forecastle. So the view from the forecastle. This is the, the perspective from the sailors, right? And and labor, and it deals with hierarchy. The the one by um, Captain Rimbold, and in fact, in the book that's titled It you know, the author is Captain, so and so. So here it's more of a of an elite perspective that kind of looks down on the sailors but observes their kind of queer customs and traditions and and stories and things. Quote, For while Brown is for the voice from the forecastle, Captain Ringbold hails us from the quarterdeck, the other end of the ship. Brown gives us the sailor's version of sailor's wrongs and is not altogether free from prejudices acquired during his little experience on shipboard. Captain Ringbold almost denies that the sailor has any wrongs and more than insinuates that sea captains are not only the best-natured fellows in the world, but they have been sorely maligned. Indeed, he explicitly charges Mr. Dana and Mr. Brown with having... Presented a decidedly one-sided view of the matter, quote. So he references a uh, uh, Richard Henry Dana here. Of course, um, wrote uh, one of the major works of the nineteenth century on sailor life. Um, Melville seems to prefer the the Brown book, but he does say that the Ringbolt book, you know, has value, mostly for Mostly for including these sailors' tales in them. He doesn't say much about it though because he seems really focused on the fact that it is kind of this elitist perspective of life on the ship that, that looks at it as like a perfect society almost. And and Melville of course is focused much more on the ills of life at sea. But anyways, it, it's it's two. I'm actually interested to maybe check out both of those original source materials. They're probably on Google Books if you want to look at them. So that's, that's the first little article we have. And then the second one is is a bit of satire actually it's um it's about 20 pages it's actually a series of little vignettes called the authentic anecdotes of old zach now old zach is zachary taylor Um, now if you remember from your history class zachary taylor was a mexican war general and then he was he was run for president i think he must have been a what party was he was he a Whig? Yeah, I think he's one of the few Whig presidents you, you had in that antebellum period. Of course, the Whigs were the nature of the political party, but they, they only had a few presidents in this period. Um, the Democrats won most of them. But the, he, was, you know, he was part of a, a, common, a, a common strategy of just kind of nominating a war hero uh, to win elections. And Zachary Taylor was the example of it, working for the Whigs. Uh, he only lived two years or so as president, and then he was taken over by Millard Fillmore, uh, the vice president, who, who served the rest of his, his term. And then after that, I think the Democrats took, took power again. Um, now, this isn't about his presidency. Uh, this is all about, uh, mostly, yeah, pretty much about his time in the war, in the Mexican War. And they're basically pretty sarcastic, cynical tales that, that tend to make him look like a bit of a buffoon. Uh, so in Anecdote 2, for instance, we see uh, Taylor is shown as, on the one hand, kind of as a, as a simple folksy guy sewing his own clothes. But we realize that the reason he's sewing his own clothes is because he's getting fatter and fatter and fatter and you know, becoming more and more of a barrel. Um, and, and that's why he's constantly sewing his own clothes, because he's repairing them. And throughout all these is, is efforts by P. T. Barnum. You know, there's like an old, a secondary plot in these anecdotes, and that's uh, P. T. Barnum trying to get relics from Taylor's war exploits. Uh, P. T. Barnum, you know, writing letters and things, trying to get these things. So that that's kind of the two sides of the story. I think what Melville is doing here is is probably critiquing the more jingoistic pro-war press of the time that that made these people look out to be great heroes, and he's just Mocking them, So it's a really good example, I think, of, of maybe early American satire, the kind we're going to see, of course, a lot in the in the 19th, later 19th and, and 20th century writing. So, yeah, it was all they were all written in 1847 uh, while the Mexican War was, I think, just winding down at that point. Maybe it was already over. Yeah, the treaty was in 1848 that ended it. So this was published while the war was still going on, but also at a time when they must have been preparing for his political career cuz the election in 1848 is is when he got elected president. Anyways, that's that's those uh, authentic anecdotes of old They're they're a, lo- they're a lot of fun, but mostly they're just silly stories. Um, then we have Mr. Parkman's tour. Mr. Parkman's tour was published Probably the same year, 1847 or 1848. And it's a review of the California and Oregon Trails by Francis Parkman. This is a work I'll probably get to at some point in this podcast if I, if I stick through it. I, I do believe it's been published uh, Library of Ameri- by the Library of America. They have three volumes of Parkman's work. Two of them are the, the history of, of the French Empire. Two huge volumes. I think it was almost 3,000 pages covering all. It's like a seven-volume work. Um, So at some point I'll do that when I feel bold enough. But there's also a slimmer volume that they publish, which has his account of the Pontiac's War and his account of of the Oregon Trail. So I think that's the book here he's talking about. I remember it was called The Oregon Trail. This one's called The California Oregon Trails. Maybe it's the same book. I think it's the same book. So Parkman is, it's kind of an interesting figure. He's one of the the first really important American historians, obviously. Um, And... uh, you know uh, he's like the, his, the historian in the american renaissance i guess that's one way to think about think about him um melville doesn't really have any criticisms of the book he thinks it's it's a wonderful book that really gives the flavor of of the of the environment of the experience of of the indian life and, and the kinds of things that that pioneers faced on the on the oregon trail I, w- I will address the, the, the question of, of how Parkman uh, seems to portray Indians, at least through, through Melville's mind. I'll, I'll just read this paragraph here. Quote, in a brief and appropriate preface, Mr. Parkman adverts to the representation of the Indian character given by poets and novelists, which he asserts are, for the most part, mere creations of fantasy. He adds that the Indian is certainly entitled to the high rank among savages, but his good qualities are not those of the Uncas or Otolisi. Now, this is back to Melville's words, now this is not to be gainsaid, but when the body of the book we are informed that is too difficult for any white man after the domestication among the Indians to hold them much better than brutes, when we are told too that to such a person the slaughter of an Indian is indifferent to the slaughter of the buffalo, with all deference we beg leave to dissent. It is too often the case that civilized beings sojourning among savages come to regard them with disdain and contempt, end quote. I, and What Melville is saying here is that despite Parkman's claim that he's going to kind of change the representation of Indians and present them in a, I guess, a more authentic and, and positive way, he fails to do that in the actual count, which is going to be full of battles and skirmishes with, with savages. Um, so it's, it's kind of like something that actually happens a lot in history when you read academic history where in the introduction or the preface you have some bold claims about this is going to change how we look at a period we actually get to the material itself it doesn't really go that far right it's like when a book says we're going to give agency to such and such a group of of people and you know often the work falls short of, of doing that and and it seems that's the trap parkman fell into i do believe parkman wanted to present Indians in more complex ways, and, and he certainly does in his History of the French Empire. Um, but you know he's he's going to fall into these same kind of uh, cliches and assumptions and that were common in American writing at the time. And we've come across these in Charles Brockton Brown's, in the Edgar Huntley book, and of course in in um, Cooper, which we did a huge series on uh, a long time ago. So. Um, but speaking of Cooper, that's the next review. The fourth little essay we have here is, is a really short, a one page, essentially a one-and-a-half-page review of The Sea Lions. The Lost Sealers, The Tale of the Antarctic Ocean. So this novel, I don't think the Library of America has, has um, included. I, I know they've come out recently with a fourth volume of his works. And of course, there's plenty of room to publish more of his work in the future. So I don't know if I'll get to this one anytime soon. But it's, it's kind of a work that Cooper wrote that I, see, I can understand why Melville was attracted to because it does seem to deal with exploration and the seas and maritime fiction. Um, and he doesn't say that much. He just gives a really straightforward review here. Um, but it's a positive review. Quote, Upon the whole, we warmly recommend the sea lions and even those who more for fashion's sake than anything else have at late joined in decrying our national novelist, will in this last work perhaps recognize one of his happiest. So I don't know, was Cooper dead by this point? I think it's his last novel. Um, So it's a nice little eulogy to Cooper as well. Uh, The next essay uh, is another short one, just a page long, A Thought on Bookbinding, which is again a review of Cooper, and this was a, a review of Red Rover. Which I think we will look at. The Red Rover is is collected in, in the Library of America. I think it's in that new fourth volume they've come up with. No, wait, that's one of his sea tales. So Red Rover is in that the third volume they published of his. The the one that has the Red Rover and. Oh, what's the other one called? I forget. Unfortunately, though, he doesn't review the book. He reviews the binding of the book and. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you can, if if you're interested in his views of technology um, or the book industry, which of course he does write a lot about. He he, he thought more and more about it in the 50s when his career was failing. So I don't know. Maybe there's something worthwhile in there. And then of course, the sixth and final little essay we get in this collection is Hawthorne and his Mosses. Um, Now, this was written while Melville was writing Moby Dick, and it's I think it's around the time he began his friendship with Nathaniel Hawthorne, maybe a little bit later. But he hides his identity. He publishes as a Virginian spending the July in Vermont. So I, it seems the reason he's doing this is because what he's trying to argue for is what he's trying to do in Moby Dick. So he doesn't want to look too self-serving, perhaps. And so there's a degree of modesty in the way he approaches it. You know, it's, it's kind of bad form then to say, like, American literature should be doing this, like Hawthorne's doing. <laughs> holding out Hawthorne as the model, and then at the same time doing that and coming out with a, uh, a book uh, that, that, in his view, accomplishes those things. Um, so I think that's why it's, it's identified this way. And I think this, is, this essay fits into kind of a group of American Renaissance kind of ideas that Americans need to break free of these European traditions and, and try to come up with an American style, American approach, American themes. And of course, Emerson famously wrote that, or gave that speech, I think it was, that, that argued for that. And Hawthorne was doing this, certainly, like setting his stories in the American wilderness, and American countryside, and American social relations. You know, and of course, Melville's trying to do the same thing. So I think this essay kind of fits in that tradition of of writers trying to argue for an American type of literature. Um, he actually talks about Shakespeare quite a bit. Of course, much of this is about Hawthorne too and uh, the, and his praise for Hawthorne and, and the way that Hawthorne projects himself onto the written words and, and of course, this is reviewing his his collection of essays uh, mosses from the old man's right and that's you know the, I don't know how many stories were in there, but I think there's a lot. it's like a massive collection of his of his short fiction. Um, Actually, Library of America has a whole volume of Hawthorne short fiction. It's about 1,200, 1,300 pages. I have it and, and should look at it at some point. But uh, And that's what he's reviewing. And he's really praising uh, Hawthorne just as a writer, as an individual, as someone who is capable of putting his heart and soul onto the page. But, but I, I want to focus on what he says about Shakespeare here. Because it's really, he's not saying it as directly, I think, as maybe some, that we need to be independent of, of Shakespeare. But he does talk about Shakespeare in, in, a, in a specific way, suggesting that he shouldn't be lit, uplifted as, as a god, right? And really, Shakespeare is, is more of a name and a mythology and, and an idea than actually uh, something a, a literary tradition useful for, for Americans. Quote, In Shakespeare's tomb, lies infinitely more than Shakespeare ever wrote. And if I magnify Shakespeare, it is not so much for what he did do as for what he did not do or refrain refrain from doing. doing. For in this world of lies, truth is forced to fly like a scared white doe into the woodlands. And only by cunning glimpses will she reveal herself, as in Shakespeare and in other masters of the great art of telling the truth, even though it be covered covertly and by snatches. But if this view of the all-popular Shakespeare be seldom taken by his readers, and a very few who extol him have ever read him deeply, or perhaps have only seen him on the tricky stage, if few men have time or patience or palate for the spiritual truth, as it is in that great genius, it is then no matter of surprise that in a contemporary's age, Nathaniel Hawthorne is a man as yet almost utterly mistaken among men. So he gets to compare Hawthorne there, but he, he says more directly later on. He says. I mean that if Shakespeare has yet to be equaled, he is sure to be surpassed and surpassed by an American born now or yet to be born. For it will never do for us who in most other things outdo as well as outbrag the world. It will not do for us to fold our hands and say, in the highest department advances, there is none. Quote. And the point here being that if America is going to be a great nation, which was, of course, part of that mid-19th century idea, right? Manifest destiny, conquer the continent, and all that. Uh, you get more and more patriotism, more celebrating in the flag and all that stuff. I talked a bit about that with the Israel Potter book. He says, if this is our agenda as a nation, right, we can't then be slavish to Shakespeare, or to, a, to a foreign ancient writer, right? We need to be new, and we need to have something new to say. And he thinks Hawthorne is one of those people who has that, that thing to say. And ultimately, what that should be is creativity and originality. That's that's what the Americans contribute can contribute to literature, and they should. Um, so he, he is arguing here for a national literature, almost. Um, anyway, so that's his uncle prose. I don't know if there's any common themes in these. Um, like I said, most of them are are essentially book reviews. And Then we have the his little effort at satire. Um, you know, there's always kind of a satirical. Um, angle to a lot of what Melville wrote, especially like in The Confidence Man and in Pierre. Israel Potter has a lot of that, too. So he's capable of satire, certainly, even if he's not primarily known as a satirical writer in the same way that maybe Mark Twain is. All right. So that's what I want to say about those those essays. And um, yeah, let me let me jump a few of these tales just to kind of evenly divide these two episodes. I'm going to look at four of the tales. First, Fragments from a Writing Desk. So this particular essay, or story actually, story was published in, I think, the, the 1830s. It's, it's an example of his juvenilia. Yeah, so I've looked it up. It's, it's 1839, Fragments from a Writing Desk. Uh, it's, it's in two parts. It's like two, two segments. I think they were published in in a like a local... Yeah, so they're published in the Democratic Press uh, in a in a town. That's a newspaper in a in a town in New York, right? And they're they're one in two, so maybe they weren't popular, so he didn't write more. But it it seems was going to be a series of these, and they're they're not that great. I think I, I don't know. I didn't get much out of them. They're both sort of a little bit gooey love stories. The first is a letter to his mother. It's not Melville writing it's some guy in l a v are his initials. It's a letter to his mother just talking about how basically how great he is about his his many virtues and then he starts talking about like some of the local girls and how beautiful they are their eyes and and all that um, a lot of poems worked in a lot of verse worked in to kind of to lay it on a little bit thick in my view uh, the second one is a, is a little bit more of a story actually and and it's where he's basically he's he's walking around or something, or I think he's he's at the river bank, and he gets a letter from Inamorta, basically saying that that he should follow and then the, the delivery person says, you know, the delivery boy says, you know, follow me to the bearer of, of the letter. And there he meets this a beautiful woman and they, they fall in love. Um, but he's disappointed at the end because she's deaf and dumb, the one who wrote the letter. So, you know, he kind of flees the relationship. But this is after he already professed love for her. So I don't know if there's too much to say about these, these works. I think they do show a writer in 1939. It wasn't the sea didn't make Melville. He was capable of, of, of writing prior to going to sea, um, even if he wasn't the most polished or experienced or... or you know, he certainly had skills. And I think that's maybe one thing we can see from fragments from a writing um, desk. Okay, then now with the next story, which is published much later, uh, The Happy Failure, we get, start to get to really uh, kind of back into the timeline of, of this series and where it is in Melville's uh, career. So The Happy Failure uh, was published originally in, in 1852. Sorry, 1953. So this is, I think, the first story he wrote or he, the first story he published after the failure of, of Pierre when he tried to make this move into writing uh, short stories for, for the magazines and, and newspapers. And so all three of these stories I'm going to look at, the next three, it's going to be The Fiddler, The Happy Failure, and Doo. These were all written in that same period of time. Um, again, they're not like the most famous of his stories. They weren't in the Piazza Tales, obviously. And um, so those are the ones I maybe get most commonly thought of as the Melville short stories, but some of these are really interesting. And and what I so this one, the Happy Failure, is sort of all about technology. And uh, we know that that Melville has a bit of a distrust of of technology. Um, you know, he I talked a little about that with Moby Dick, right? That that famous scene where where Ahab rejects technology and invent, rejects machinery. Uh, we're going to see it much more with Tartarus of Maids, where we see kind of a general overall critique of, of technology's effect on, on society. Um, and so what the character here has, so it's, it's this guy, um, the, the main character here is, what's his name? Do we have his name? I'm not sure, but he has a he has a servant called Yorpi, a black servant, a slave. Yeah, I think he's a slave that helps him along, and they're carrying on this big box, and this box is boxes his invention, uh, this man's invention, and it's called the hydraulic hydrostatic apparatus, and its goal is to drain swamps and marshes, convert them uh, into fertile fields. So that's what it's supposed to do. And um, you know, this was a time of invention in in American history, a time of uh, early industrialization, where there was a lot of innovation. It was during the you know the canal boom and the beginning of the railroad boom, and of course you had know, the cotton gin and the you know movable or what's the, what's the term um, interchangeable parts. I think Eli Whitney was involved in, in innovating in that stuff too. And there was a lot of people trying to to invent things for farms, for you know for. Development that would be that would be taken off and you know, this is just one of, of many, you know I don't know if something like this ever invented, but you know It's kind of put in the context of a lot of these failed inventors and these people who tried to you know Make the next best thing, you know, the thing that's going to change The economy make them rich, you know, help America develop and all that um, But what we have here is a character who's completely d- attached to this one kind of invention, right? You know, I think you can contrast this to like the really successful inventors, like the Edison, right? Who invented many, many things, and you know, many of them maybe didn't go anywhere. Many of them were failures, but the things he did that you know, did take off were really successful. Here we have a guy who just invented the one thing, and it's very ambitious, though. I mean, draining swamps with a machine is pretty ambitious. It's almost fantastical, actually, in the, the way it's presented here. And so the main plot here is they they try to work this thing. They try to get it to work. And, and the old man who's the, this inventor, right, who's invested his whole life, his fortune into this device, you know, learns that this device is, it's not going to work. It's, it's called the happy failure though, because the character seems to, you know, find a silver lining in his, in the, in the fact that this, this lifelong quest to invent this, Swamp draining machine doesn't work. Now it's not really explained why he starts to take it as a as a, a success or a silver lining. It's just kind of stated by the narrator that in later years this man came to look back at this as you know a great failure. It's not really explained why. Here's what how it's written: When some years had gone by, my dear old uncle began to fail, and after peaceful days of autumnal content was gathered gently to his father's faithfully old yorpi closing his eyes as i took one last look at his venerable face the pale resigned lips seemed to move i seemed to hear again his deep fervent cry praise be to god for the failure um so i don't know maybe it's just about american optimism and a bit of a critique of american optimism and this investment this this idea that technology is going to solve all all the problems and and solve every problem kind of the overambition of a technological technocratic society So that's that story. Um, a very similar tale, actually, it is The Fiddler. Oh, but one more thing about this. Of course, coming in the aftermath of the Pierre, um, we want to wonder, does Melville, did Melville see Pierre as a happy failure? Right? Obviously, it was very cathartic for him. It was something he had to say. It was drawn from his experiences and his frustrations as a writer. Right? You have that whole odd subplot about Pierre trying to be a writer, which seems out of place, but it, it's not out of place in terms of Melville's life. And in The Happy Failure and in The Fiddler, you have characters who fail. It, they're, they're stories about failure. And so let's jump into The Fiddler, which, like, which um, actually is a better story looking at this theme of failure. Because we actually see someone, still as a relatively young man, turn his back on his talent and his, what he's good at you know, because of the frustrations he faces in his career. And he tries to find meaning somewhere else in some other profession. So basically, you have um, three characters in this story. You have Hawkboy, who he's, he's like middle age, but um, he's presented as kind of bland. It's, you know, not initially not a very interesting person, just a regular guy, right? Just a regular dude. And then we have Helmstone. Helmstone is being introduced to this guy, Hawkboy, by their mutual friend, Standard. Now, Standard seems to praise this hot boy in comparison to, like, child Um, yeah, But he's not famous. He's not really doing anything. Um, but then he takes out his fiddle, plays it, and it turns out he's a master fiddle player. But we learn that he's turned his back on on that profession. And now he just teaches violin. He just teaches violin and, and makes a happy living doing that. Right. So he tries to... He, he finds an easier path, I suppose, to just be a teacher, but he also seems to find more meaning than he would pursuing fame and, the, and art and the demands that an artistic life would, would require. Um, and so that's really the theme of the story, and it's, it's turning away from fame. And it's kind of sad to think about because we know Melville's gonna do that same thing, right? Uh, now fame, maybe that's too strong a word for it. He didn't sell books. Um, so it was repeated frustration that turned him away from, from writing. But he would spend you know, the next 30, 40 years of his life essentially you know, as a customs agent after, the, after he writes The Confidence Man. And you know, how many things did Melville not get to say because of the frustrations he faced in you know, after writing Moby Dick and, and Pierre? We'll never know. But um, is that a big loss? I think that's one thing the story forces us to think about. You know, is that a loss? And do artists have a burden to suffer to create something for the world? Or do they have a right to just just live their lives as best as they they can, right? Sometimes we think, we, we sometimes, some critics of capitalism talk about all the Mozarts working in coal mines, right? All the gifted, talented people who work you know, in factories or coal mines, or in, you know, a Walmart, and never have the time to cultivate their talents. That's probably absolutely true. I'm sure there's all kinds of talent out there that we never hear from. But you know, sh- you know, is it a burden? Are they? Do we? Are we required to create a society that cultivates all those artists and then throws them into the spotlight that maybe they don't want to be in? Right? Not all artistic ability needs to be cultivated. Right? It's not a Limited resource. Genius is not a limited resource, I guess I'm trying to say. Um, and ultimately, more important is happiness and fulfillment in life. And we can find that in many ways, not simply in, in trying to be the, the best musician or best artist or, or writer or whatever. Here's how Stanford explains it to our, um, his friend. You see, uh, yeah, he says, who is this hawk boy? Um, what's his name? Hellstone says, who is this haw- hawk boy? An extraordinary genius, Helmstone, who in boyish boyhood drained the whole flagon of glory, who going from city to city was going from triumph to triumph. Once one who had been the object of wonder to the wisest, been caressed by the loveliest, received the open homage of thousands and thousands of the rabble. But today he walks Broadway and no man knows him. With you and me, the elbow of the hurrying clerk and the pole of his remorseless ominous shove him. He who has had a hundred times been crowned with laurels now wears, as you see, a bungled beaver. Once fortune poured showers of gold onto his lap as showers of laurels leave him on it, leave his brow. today from house to house he hires, teaching fiddling for he hires, teaching fiddling for a living, crammed out with fame. he is now glorious or hilarious without it with genius and without fame he is happier than a king more a prodigy now than ever. Um, so that's that's the lesson of Hawkboy, right Don't that the life of fame, Fully cultivating one's talents is is a life of that that may not be for everyone and not for all talented people. Right? It's not a it's not a it's not the burden of genius that that people necessarily have to bear, which I think is a good message. So, but that's what I want to say about the fit there And then that just leaves Cockadoodle Do, also uh, published in the same period of time. I think also in in 1853. So one of these these. Stories that come out right in the aftermath of Pierre. Um, this is a, kind of a return to satire. So, I, I don't know. There's like some cultural context here, it seems, that there was a, like it was popular at the time for people to, I guess, raise chickens, you know, fancy chickens, you know, kind of what you see at the fair, I guess, you know, where people try to get the chickens with the big, headdresses and fancy them all up you know through through selective breeding or whatever and you know melville's having a little bit fun with with that that theme um now the main story in a way it's kind of like the fiddler maybe in that we have a a character who's not happy with his life who's fairly depressed uh despite having a a kind of exciting background i mean he has traveled around the world and things but still you know he's even spend time in Shanghai, it seems, and um, all that. But it's still very, you know, bleak. He doesn't have, isn't very, you know, happy with his life. But he's kind of awakened by something very simple and, and maybe even banal, and that is hearing the, the you know, the, 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 the voice, what's it called? The What is a, a rooster? The crow, the crow of the rooster. He gets really kind of warmed by that and almost obsessed with that. And then he wants to actually buy this, this rooster. That, that's, mostly, that's pretty much the story. Let me start with the depression of the character. This is how Melville, the narrator, he describes it. A miserable world. Who would take the trouble to make a fortune in it when he knows not how long he can keep it? For the thousand villains and asses who have the management of railroads and steamboats and innumerable other vital things in this world, if they would make me dictator in North America while I'd string them all up and hang them, draw a quarter, fry, roast, boil, stew, grill, and devil them like so many turkey legs, the rascal numbskulls of stokers, I'd set them to stokering in Tatourish, I would. Great improvements of the age. What, to call the fascination with death and murder an improvement? Who wants to travel so fast? My grandfather did not, and he was no fool. Hark! Here comes the old dragon again, the gigantic gadfly of Moloch. Snort, puff, scream. Here he comes, straight bent through the vernal woods, like the Asiatic cholera cantering to a camel. Stand aside, here he comes, the chattering murderer, the death monopolizer. I don't know, he's talking about the railroad here, and he's got all this wonderful language to describe the horrors of the railroad. Unnecessary, violent to nature, spewing out sounds and noises, and unnatural things. It's just you know, th- th- this is not an unfamiliar language to describe the railroad. We even saw that all the way back when we looked at Norris's novel, *The Octopus*. Obviously, the railroad was the octopus. You know, the the the, the villainous railroad, the vill- You know, and then the the question of how we judge progress, right, is is here. Now, this particular character is not the most appealing. He's kind of a bitter man and kind of nasty, but nevertheless, it's you know, I think that critique of technology is something we've seen a lot in Melville, and it it's not absent from the time right even in a lot of art there is this kind of desired return to the idyllic countryside right and the hudson valley school painters for instance so anyways he hears the the rooster and this somehow inspires him he has to have it so he goes to seek out the 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 owner of the rooster and the guy's name is mary musk and he guy the guy refuses to to sell him the rooster, um, and he can't buy. It and they kind of bicker over it. This guy, this narrator, is really desperate to buy it, but he's unsuccessful. And at the end of the story, that whole family, the Mary Muck family, and the rooster also are all dead. So that that's the tale. <laughs> now, I guess the one important thing to focus on, there, on in this story is why doesn't this Mary Musk, who's his family's dying. They're sick. They could use the money, you know, not sell this rooster to our narrator because the narrator is going to give him a lot of money. Um, you know, he, he has some wealth. He, he's a bit bitter about that wealth, but he, he's certainly more wealthy than than Mary Musk. And the response is kind of an interesting inversion of class and power, um, So he he basically says, I'd like to buy this, right? And you're poor, so obviously you're going to sell it to me. And he takes offense to being called poor, Mary Musk. He says, Poor men like me? Why call me poor? Don't the cock I own glorify this otherwise inglorious, lean, Latin-jawed land? Didn't my cock encourage you? And I give you all this glorification away gratis. I'm a great philanthropist. I am a rich man, a very rich man, and a happy one. Crow trumpet. And... Uh, so he's, his value, then, is in this thing he creates. He creates beauty in this world that's otherwise corrupted by the railroads and everything. So it's, it's just a nice little uh, plane with class lines um, at, the, at the end of the tale. So um, that's it. I, of these, I, of course, I think Hawthorne is, of all these works that we looked at, I think Hawthorne and his Moses Mosses, sorry, Hawthorne and his Mosses, is maybe the most important of these works it's you know if you're going to read like one melville essay that's probably the one to read because uh, it does get to the heart of of his idea about what an american literature should be and, and it really talks about his friendship with hawthorne which was developed in the in you know the, the early 50s the early 1850s um the story i liked the most was the fiddler i think it's got the clearest theme um, but i like the happy failure too cockadoodle do is is interesting as well, but but you know, it's a little bit too ponderous, I think. And the the, the narrator there is a little bit over the top. Um, so that's gonna leave for the next episode seven short stories. Um, and of these I think I've only read one of them before. A Paradise for Bachelor and a Tartour some maids. So um, if you have the Library of America edition it's just gonna be everything published after after Cockadoodle Do. They're called the stories are called Poor Man's Pudding and Rich Man's Crumbs, then a, the Two Temples, then a Paradise of Bachelors and a Tartarus of Maids, then Jimmy Rose, then the Geese, then I and My Chimney, and then the Apple Tree Table. And that will pretty much complete all of all of Melville's short short fiction. Um, and then when we're done with that, we'll we'll kind of return to his final novel. The final novel publisher in his life, anyways, The Confidence Man. So, um, if you're reading along, just look at the rest of those short stories. And uh, let me know what you think of, of these essays. What, let me know what you think about you know The Fiddler or The Happy Failure or Cock a uh, I'm sure there's a lot I, I missed in, in glancing at those stories. Um, so, as always, thanks for, for listening to me and, and, and sharing your thoughts with me. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, I'll be back shortly with the rest of these short stories, my thoughts on the rest of these short stories. Uh, see you next time.